Well, take our Bibles, please, and let us uh, turn to the book of Acts and the chapter 12. The book of Acts, chapter 12. It's good to see you here. Is this working? That's right. Acts 12, good to see you, as I say, and those online as well, we welcome you too. And we'll read, I want to read right down to verse 17 of this chapter, Acts chapter 12. It's reading from verse number 1, let us hear the word of God. Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James the brother of John with the sword. And because he saw it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. Then were the days of unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two, <coughs> excuse me, bound with two chains. And the keepers before the door kept the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter in the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And the angel said unto him, Gird thyself and bind on thy sandals. And so he did. And he saith unto him, Cast thy garment about thee, and follow me. And he went out and followed him, and wist not that it was true which was done by the angel, but thought he saw a vision. When they were past the first and the second ward, they came unto the iron gate that leadeth unto the city, which opened to them of his own accord. And they went out and passed on through one street, and forthwith the angel departed from him. And when Peter was come to himself, he said, Now I know of a surety that the Lord has sent his angel, and hath delivered me out of the hand of Herod, and from all the expectation of the people of the Jews. And when he had considered the thing, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda, and when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told him, and told how Peter stood before the gate. And they said unto her, Thou art mad. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, It is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But he, beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, Go show these things unto James and to the brethren. And he departed and went into another place. And the Lord will bless the reading of his word to all of our hearts. Let's just bow together for another word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father and our eternal God, we come afresh to thee in the name of thy Blessed Son, we thank Thee for the opportunity of gathering in Thy house, meeting together as a band of Thy people. We come, O Lord, unto Thee 
We bow down and worship and in praise at thy feet. We come to the one who is the living God, the one who has given to us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. And, O Lord, we pray that thou wilt be with us tonight as we uh, come to this passage, to thy word that thou hast given for this season. We ask, O Lord, that thou wilt draw very near, and thou wilt minister unto us and bless us richly by the Spirit, and may we know his power and his blessing as we wait at thy feet. Lord, give me help, give thy people help to hear, to understand, and to receive the word of the living God. We pray this in Jesus' name, and for his sake and for his glory. Amen and amen. Now, this entire chapter presents a wonderful account of God's overruling providence in the life of the early church. The account focuses on two main characters, as far as men are concerned. First of all, Herod Agrippa. Herod Agrippa II is who he actually is. He's the son of that other Herod of whom we read about a little earlier in this book. And then there is Peter the Apostle. Now, what a contrast there is between these two men. If we take Herod, as the chapter commences, he's in collusion with the unbelieving Jews. He's persecuting God's people. He has killed James, as verse 2 shows you. He has imprisoned Peter. And it's his purpose, his desire to murder Peter as well. So he's a man who possesses great power. He's arrogant. He's oppressive. He's filled with a malignant hatred for the Lord and for his church. But then you go to the close of the chapter, and we find that the tyrant, Herod, under the hand of God, is smitten in a most horrific way. He is eaten of worms. He dies an horrific death of agony. And obviously, he goes out into hell to suffer for his sin. And so the chapter begins with this man buoyant and ruling and believing that he can do what he likes. And then the chapter ends with his terrible demise. You look at Peter, the other main character, and we find him at the start of the chapter. He's arrested. He's imprisoned. Seemingly, there's no hope of escape. And his death also appears to be imminent. And so that's how the chapter begins as far as Peter is concerned. When we go to the close of the chapter, well, where I uh, finished reading verse 17, there's some uh, important words there at the end of that verse. It says, and he departed and went into another place. And of course, we know from the narrative of the book of Acts and uh, the rest of Peter's life story, well, while his ministry or his appearance here begins in that very dire manner, uh, as one who's under the threat of death, about to be imminently slaughtered. Yet you come to the close of chap the chapter, he's a free man, he has been sovereignly delivered, he's going on with his ministry, he goes wherever it is, it says, simply to another place, and he is in freedom from that dark situation that he is seen in in the opening part of the chapter. No, uh, so that's how the chapter begins and closes with regard to these two men. How do we account for this contrast? The answer to that question is essentially the story of this chapter. 
a number of facts, a number of points, provide a summary of the story that we find in Acts chapter 12 that is given to us by the Holy Spirit as he moved, look, to write this narrative, to write this historical event. And there are three outstanding points I would suggest to you that we can see in this chapter. And they are as follows. Number one, the sleep. The sleep. Look with me at verse number six. And it says, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers. Now that is an accurate detail. It is an authentic detail. Peter was truly asleep in the physical sense. But asleep is a revelation of the fashion in which he was able to face and deal with a situation that I have described for you briefly at the start of this chapter as far as he is concerned. And I want you to think about that. He is asleep. Now I know that uh, some men have preached on this man, Peter, sleeping here, and they've used it in a gospel or evangelistic sense, and they've said terrible things about Peter that he's, uh, he's a type of a sinner, he's, he's asleep, he doesn't care. And I must say, I d- totally disagree with that. That's nothing to do with this context. He's a man of God. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. And here he is sleeping. And I want you to notice a few things about his sleep, because it reveals a lot to us about this man. In his sleep, we see his fortitude or his courage. It's in the face of Herod's threat that he finds himself here in these circumstances. But he does face it with great fortitude. And that is signified by the fact that he is asleep. Peter's awareness, therefore, is that the Lord, not Herod, is in charge. And therefore, he, Peter, can go to sleep, even though it seems that the next day, as far as Herod's plans are concerned, he's going to be taken forth to die. And so, his inner sleep, we do see his fortitude, his courage in the face of Herod's threat, and he knows that the Lord is in sovereign control of that entire situation. It's interesting, when you look at the Bible carefully and study it, that there are references to other men of God who go to sleep when it seems that things are very, very dark and threatening. If you'll turn with me to the book of Psalms, you will see what I mean. I only can give you one example, and it's Psalm 3 and the verse number 5. And you may have read this little psalm, I'm sure most of you have. And it says there, Psalm 3 verse 5, I laid me down and slept. And then he says, I await, for the Lord sustained me. Now, this psalm, as you see from the title of it, was written by David when he was under great threat also from his own son Absalom. And he had a flea for his life. And you know the story from the book of uh, 1 Samuel, when this man David, this man of God, had to run for his life, had to flee out of Jerusalem and all that took place because of what Absalom was planning to do. But he wrote this psalm when his troubles were great, when they had increased around him, when men were saying, including his own son, there's no help for him in God. And I'm sure that Herod at least was thinking that as far as Peter was concerned. There's no help for him and God. I've got him in prison. I'm about to kill him. 
And I'm going to do what I want to do with this man, Peter. And so David's enemies were undoubtedly thinking the same thing because the psalm records it here. But notice what he says in verse 3. But thou, Lord, uh, thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter up of my head. I cried unto the Lord with my voice. He heard me out of his holy hill. And then verse 5, I laid me down and slept. I awaked, for the Lord sustained me. And you will find that David a number of times writes in the Psalms about sleeping in the face of his enemies or in the face of their plans. And it's not because he's careless. It's not because he has no consciousness of his danger or he's reckless or whatever you want to say about him. No, 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 it's not. It's because he's resting in the Lord. And therefore he can go to sleep and have a good night's sleep and wake up the next day and go on with life because he knows that the Lord is in charge. Turn to Proverbs 3 and look at verse 24. Proverbs 3, verse 24. And here we read about another, uh, another instance of sleep. Proverbs 3, 24. As you turn to it, you'll find that the context here in Proverbs 3 is all about the benefit of wisdom and knowledge. You read about those issues in the previous verses. And so you come down to verse 24, and it says this, When thou liest down, thou shalt, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down, and thy sleep shall be sweet. Now, there's a common term among people. Well, it used to be quite a lot. Uh, people who knew the Bible, they would talk about sweetly sleeping, or uh, the sleep of sweetness, and so on. And it comes from this verse. That's the wonderful thing about the Bible and knowing the Bible. A whole pile of little cliches that we use over and over again, such as a wee bird told me. That comes out of the Bible. And so here is this issue of your sleep being sweet. Why? Because of the benefit of God's knowledge and God's instruction and, and, and wisdom and so on. And so there's another reference here to sleep. And I could take you to other places as well. We don't want to do that for time's sake. And you know, I would, I would imagine that Peter had these scriptures in his mind. Peter knew the Bible. The Bible had become alive to Peter on the day of Pentecost as never before. He could quote it, as you see in Acts Two and the, the great sermon he preached in Acts 3 that we were looking at on Sunday night. He knew the Bible inside out. And I am positive that he knew these verses about in the day of trouble actually lying down and going to sleep. And so when that came upon him, what we have in Acts chapter 12, he was not been reckless. He was not being foolish or whatever. He had the calm assurance that the Lord was in charge and the Lord knew what he was doing. Now, when I thought about this a little farther, my mind went to Christ himself. If you'll go to Mark 4, and I'm sure some of you know where I'm going here. Mark chapter 4, verse number 36 to 41. And it says there, it records there, that time when the Lord was on the boat and the storm came, and you know the story. Anyhow, verse 36 of Mark 4 down to verse number 41 but verse 38 says, He was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow. Now, Peter was in that boat that day, or that night rather. 
Peter witnessed this. Peter was actually one of the men who went up to the Lord and he said, Carest thou not that we perish? They awoke the Lord out of his sleep and they complained to him that he didn't care about them. There you are, fast asleep when we're about to be drowned and you're sleeping. Why was the Lord sleeping? Because the Lord was not in any shape or fashion tossed about or moved, agitated in some sinful way as men are because he's God and he knows exactly what's going on. Martin, or not Martin, Matthew Henry has a wonderful little statement about this, about the Lord sleeping in the boat. And he put it this way, Matthew Henry said that his humanity was sleeping, but his deity was fully awake. And that's true. The Lord knew, even though he was asleep, what was going on because he's God. His manhood is asleep. And therefore, again, Peter's there. Peter learned from the Lord that you can rest in him. That's really what his sleep is all about. I know he's physically asleep in Acts 12, but it's a portrayal of the fact that Peter was resting in his God. And with fortitude and courage, he therefore faced the situation and was able to deal with it and go to sleep. Maybe he thought of Psalm 121 and verse number 4, where it says, Behold, he that keepeth Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And you see, Peter could go to sleep knowing that the Lord was watching over him, caring for him, his eye was on him, and therefore he could rest. He was resting in his God, even though he was also physically asleep. So in his sleep, we see his fortitude. But in his sleep, we also see his faith. Peter slept in faith that the Lord was going to deliver him. And that faith that he displayed by actually being asleep, calm, taking his repose, etc., was because of the Lord's revelation to him some years before. And if you will look at John 21, you will see what I mean. John 21, verse 18, uh, when the Lord dealt with Peter at the Sea of Galilee and recommissioned him, sent him forth to preach again, he said this to him, John 21, verse 18, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, When thou wast young, thou girdedst thyself and walkedst whither thou wouldest. But when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands, and another shall gird thee, and carry thee whither thou wouldest not. This spake he, signifying by what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. The Lord told Peter on this occasion that at this stage in his life when he was in between youthfulness and old age that he was going to live until he would grow old. And so at this stage he is a mature man. He has on his side of things, he, he is healthy, his strength. I mean John 21. And so Acts 12 is not terribly long after this. And that means that Peter is still in that stage of life where uh, he has full health and strength. And the Lord had told him, you're going to grow old and then you'll die. And so that's why he's sleeping. Because the Lord recommissioned him 
And the Lord therefore showed to Peter that he's going to live for, well, whatever time it was going to be, but certainly into old age. And we have no idea what age he was, but that doesn't matter. The Lord told me he would actually grow old and then he would die. And he died a martyr's death according to those words. But the point is, there was a work for Peter to do. And the work was not finished in Acts 12. Because he hasn't reached that stage in life. And Peter had no idea how he was going to get out of that prison, but he knew he would be out of it. And he would go on with the work of God for time beyond those days. And so, the Lord, if you look at verse 7, uh, verse uh, or in John, 9, or John 21 again, verse 19, the last two words of that verse are these. Follow me. Follow me, Peter. I have a work for you to do, and it will not be finished until you're an old man, and then you will pass away. And so here's this man, Peter. He's following the Lord. He's in Acts 2, the great preacher at Pentecost. In Acts, 20, or Acts uh, 10 and 11, the man who opened the door to the Gentile world, Oh, the Lord's words being fulfilled to Peter. And he goes on with his ministry. And though there's a, a blip now when he's in prison, he knows he's not going to die at this stage. His faith is based on the Lord's revelation and the Lord's promise to him that he will keep on going. Now turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, 12 to 14. 2 Peter 1 verse 12, and Peter writes to these people, he's written his first epistle, and he writes now to the very same people once more, uh, 2 Peter 1 verse 12, and he says this, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth, ye I think it meet as long as I am in this tabernacle, that's his body, He's talking about, as long as I'm in this tabernacle to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that shortly I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ has showed me. And that takes you back to John 21, where the Lord showed Peter how he would die. And now as he writes 2 Peter, he is this old man. He's in his elderly years. He says, I know that shortly I'll have to lay down my body, even as the Lord showed me. And so there he is. He's writing Scripture. He's preaching. He's serving the Lord right into this particular point that we see here in 2 Peter chapter 1. And so here is Peter's sleep. It signifies his fortitude. It signifies his faith. How do we apply this to ourselves? Simply this way, my friend. Every day that God gives you is a day to do a work for him. The Lord's not going to tell you in any shape or fashion that you're going to live to an old age. He's not going to do that. So I'm, a, I'm therefore saying in that statement that nobody here is really old. But the Lord's not going to tell you that you're going to grow old, really old, and then the end will come. We don't know that. We have no idea when our death will come, or the end will come. But every day that the Lord gives to us, we learn from this passage 
We face that day with fortitude. We face it with faith because the Lord has us still here. He has something for us to do. And of course, you know of many who in their lifetime did go into jail and uh, were taken from jail to their deaths. But while they were in jail, they served the Lord. They did a great work. And they saw much accomplished in their day and in their time. I remember hearing on the radio uh, many years ago when I was living in America, a wonderful story, a wonderful account in a Christian radio station about a, a man in, in communist East Europe. I can't remember the country, it doesn't matter, but he's been into to prison. And he was put into a cell with a man who was totally insane. And the mistake that the communists made was they let the pastor, this man was a pastor, a minister, they let him take his Bible with him into that prison cell. And they thought, well, we'll put him in there and this insane man will drive him insane. That was their plan. The pastor began to read his Bible to that poor man who had lost his mind. He just kept reading the Bible. And the man's sanity returned, and he got saved. That's the power of the Word of God. There's a man in the jailhouse there in a communist country, and this is a true story. I'm not telling you a lie. This is a true story. And through that wonderful means of the Word of God, the Word of God, quick and powerful, the other man was converted. So there's the sleep that we see as part of this story. Then we, need, we notice the supplication. And that's in verse 5. Uh, Peter therefore was kept in prison, but prayer was made uh, without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And so the detail that I brought to you in my first point there about the Lord's award to Peter um, in John 21, uh, please remember that it wasn't secretly delivered to Peter. There were other disciples there that day. And if you read the story carefully, you'll find that they heard what the Lord told Peter, that he would grow old and then he would die. And so the church of God, and you know how things spread among people uh, who uh, they hear such a thing and then they tell somebody else, and that's undoubtedly what happened. So what I'm showing you is the supplication here by the church for Peter was offered up on the basis of what the Lord had revealed to Peter. And so they weren't there praying that night in some panic-stricken way. They were praying, they were praying, brethren and sisters, on the basis of the same word that had been given to Peter. They knew that Peter's time had not come, as I've already indicated, in dealing with his sleep. His time had not come. The church was praying for Peter on the basis of the Lord's Word and the Lord's revelation. Now, that's an important detail as I talk about this matter of their supplication. You see, prayer or supplication is within God's sovereign means for the fulfillment of His purpose. You might say, if they knew and I'm saying to you, they didn't know that Peter was not going to die at this stage. So if they knew that, why did they pray? That's a very good question. But from another angle, it's a very poor question. It's like some people saying, if God's going to save his elect, why preach? Have you ever asked that question? I know 
that Christians do still ask it, who don't believe that God has chosen the people to be saved. And then they come up with all of their ideas. There's no point in praying. That's true. My dear friend, that is fatalism. That's not faith. Because fatalism is saying something like this. What will be will be and there's nothing we can do about it. That's not faith. That's fatalism. And that's not biblical. True faith looks at God and takes His promise, promises and says, I am going to pray on the basis of God's promises because God has shown me that He uses the prayers of His people to fulfill His purposes. And brethren and sisters, that is a very important truth. That's why they're praying, though they knew of the promise of the Lord to Peter that he is going to live on for another while. It's because they knew as well from the Word of God that the Lord has ordained certain means that he uses. Prayer is here, preaching, evangelism at every level, etc., etc. God has appointed all these means. And God uses those means to fulfill his own uh, ordained uh, plans and purposes for his church, for his work, to extend his kingdom, to do that which is going to glorify his name. This was a test. Oh, yes, this prayer is real. They're really praying. They're praying in an earnest manner because they love Peter and they want God to set him free. And therefore, they're before God with all the earnestness that, earnestness that their hearts can muster. But the point is that they are praying because God has ordained that we pray. And He uses our prayers to fulfill, to bring about what He has purpose to do. He gave great promises to Israel through Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36... And if you go down that great chapter, those promises were specifically given to the nation of Israel of what God was going to do at a future time. But then he said this in verse 37, and you know the verse, many of you. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. Isn't that what Daniel experienced? Daniel found in the writings of Jeremiah as you see in Daniel 9, that God had actually specified the time, the 70 years that they would spend in Babylon, and then he would bring them home. And as soon as Daniel read those words, he went to pray. He got before God, and he began to pray with all his heart, confess his sin. Why? Because God uses the prayers of men of God and women of God to bring about the fulfillment of his purposes. And so we can see this clearly, therefore, that prayer or supplication is within God's sovereign means for the fulfillment of his purposes. And prayer and supplication was for the immediate intervention of God in that situation. Peter was incarcerated in a fashion that it required a miracle to get him out of there to secure his release. And so look at verse 6, and you'll see why I say that. Uh, Acts 12, verse 6, And when Herod would have brought him forth, the same night Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and the keepers before the door, 
kept the prison. So there are three things there. Two soldiers, one on either side of Peter. He's chained to them. He's bound with two chains to those two soldiers. And then there are keepers outside the door. And so there are the chains and the two soldiers and the keepers. And then if you go on a little farther down in, uh, to verse number 7, it says this, Behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him, and a light shined in the prison. And he smote Peter in the side and raised him up, saying, Arise up quickly. And his chains fell off from his hands. And there's the miraculous power of God. The chains simply fall off. And then go down to verse number 10. When they were past the first and the second ward, they came on to the iron gate that leadeth on to the city. That was the last great obstacle. And what does it say? Which opened to them of his own accord. And I have mentioned this before in preaching, but I'll just remind you of what those words literally mean. Which opened to them of his own accord. The words there of his own accord translate a Greek word that sounds something like that, this, automatos. And it gives us the English word automatic. And that's exactly what happened. Those doors opened automatically, right in front of them. There's Peter coming, and he sees these huge doors or gates. And he must wonder, well, the chains have fallen off, and the guards have been overcome, but look at those gates. And as they approached the gates, they just swung open automatically. And so immediate intervention was needed, and immediate intervention was given. The supplication prevailed. Now again, I cannot say to you tonight what the Lord is going to do this night or tomorrow morning. I, I have no idea. But what I am showing you is we can prevail upon God to work in situations that seem impossible, that seem beyond, well, they are beyond our abilities. They are beyond human uh, powers. Isn't that what the Lord told Zerubbabel? Not by might, not by power, by my Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who's at work here and he opens up these doors and he sets his servant free. So there is the sleep and the supplication. And then just a word about the Savior. Because in verse 7, as we read, it says, Behold, the angel of the Lord came upon him. Now I'd go down to verse number 17 and notice this. But he, beckoning unto them with a hand to hold their peace, this is Peter, declared unto them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And so the angel of the Lord in verse 7 is referred to as the Lord in verse 17. And I'm suggesting to you very strongly that the same person and exactly Christ himself. Because in the scriptures like these, Christ is very often referred to as the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the covenant. He's returned to heaven by this time, but he comes down here. And the Lord did come down to some of these apostles in those days. He came to, to Paul later on, as you read in Acts 21, I think it is, when Peter, or sorry, when Paul 
is filled with great fear and he, he appears to Paul literally and, and before his very face and, and says, Paul, fear not. Be of good courage. Be of good cheer. As you have testified of me in Jerusalem, you'll testify also in Rome. So the Lord did appear to certain men after he had gone back to heaven and that's what's happening here. But go to verse 23 because in many ways this is the climax. Well, verse 22, just to, to set the scene, it's all about Herod. He had made this great oration, as it says in verse 21. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God, not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him. That is, smote Herod, because he gave not God the glory. And he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost the old English word for soul. He gave up his soul. The time had come. You see, Herod thought he was going to secure Peter's death. But it was his own, his own death that this chapter records. Not a wonderful development. It really is. It starts out with Herod thinking, I've got him. I'm going to kill him. I've killed James. I'll kill Peter. But he didn't take God into the reckoning. And it comes to the climax when for his own sin of arrogance and pride and the love of the praise of man and not giving God any glory whatsoever, he's smitten. And therefore, the danger passes. Here is the Savior. Here is the Lord Jesus at work on behalf of his church. Christ is the Savior of his people in all circumstances. Just not to save us from our sins, but to keep us every day, to deliver us from whatever, to enable us to continue on serving God, doing his work, whatever way that may be. There's a work for every one of us to do. And therefore, what a story you have in Acts 12. And it is summed up by the sleep and the supplication and the Savior. That's how you sum it up. That's how you bring it all together. And it tells us tonight that we can come before the God of heaven, trusting in him with all our hearts, not being tossed to and fro with worry or agitation or concern, but resting in him and cry to him, and he intervenes. And the whole point is, his work goes on. Look at verse 24. But the word of God grew and multiplied. Herod thought he had it all wrapped up. And the work of God would cease. That's his agenda here. James is an apostle. Peter is an apostle. Paul and Barnabas are in the city at this time. And there's no doubt, I mean in Jerusalem, there's no doubt that Herod had a scheme to destroy every apostle, but God had other plans. And therefore, what a wonderful chapter this is. May the Lord encourage you tonight in your life as a Christian and your work for God and lead you on and have you to grow in grace and see that it's God's work that matters it's not you or me, it's His work. It's the glory of Christ that matters. It's the good of souls that matters. 
more than anything else. And may the Lord bless his word to you for his own eternal praise. Let's just have a word of prayer. Father, we thank thee for this great chapter, for its revelation to us of these issues that we have thought about tonight. And Lord, we're glad we can rest in thee. We can lay ourselves down to sleep and awake then the next day because you sustained us. We thank the Lord that we can pray to the living God, to the God who intervenes, the God who's in charge of all, the God who is the Savior of his people and his work. And so, Lord, we hand all over to thee, and we pray that thou wilt hear our prayers and be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.